I usually manage to tie at least one knot with my mask and my microphone, so that was, that was fairly, fairly flawless. Um, this morning, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be able to conclude our Easter series. We spent two weeks and Good Friday looking at all of the events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And we, we don't just want to move on from that and pack away the Easter decorations and take the cloth off the cross and, and just put all that away. We want to spend another week just dwelling on the resurrection and thinking, you know, what's the impact? What do we do with this? How do we go from here rather than just kind of forget it and, and move on at the end of Easter? Uh, so particularly this morning, we're going to do that by looking at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And I'm hoping that together we'll be able to look at it, as Duncan was praying, just with, with fresh eyes and fresh ears, that we'll be able to think uh, anew about the Great Commission and kind of set aside some of the things we know about it and think through it every year and just look at what Matthew has to say and why he's included here and, and the importance of the Great Commission uh, in a new light. So what I want us to see this morning are uh, two reasons in particular why the Great Commission matters. And let me share them with you before we, we get too deep. First, the Great Commission is rooted in the resurrection. As Jody said uh, last week, after Easter Sunday, we don't just want to pack everything away and with it the Easter, uh, w- with it the resurrection. We live and we breathe the resurrection. We're resurrection people. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith. It's the reason we have hope in Christ. Having the resurrection of Jesus and all that it means uh, in mind is essential for our right understanding of everything that happens in Scripture after the resurrection, including the Great Commission. The second thing I want us to see why the Great Commission matters is that the Great Commission is rooted in the sovereign plan of God. The Great Commission is a piece of the glorious work of the Lord, that work that spans from eternity past to eternity future, from Genesis to Revelation. From the moment when God said, let there be light and the sun was formed, to the eternal future we know we have with Him where the presence of God is all the light we need. Great Commission is a part of that work. So there's only 30 minutes or so ahead of us. We're going to get right into it. So let's go to Matthew 28. And I'm going to read from verses 16 to 20. Would you stand with me while I, I, while I do that? Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can take a seat. So our key question this morning is, why does the Great Commission matter? That's where I want to spend our time. Well, we often just assume it does kind of by default, right? We don't necessarily have a reason, but we we preach it every year. It's called the Great Commission. 
It's, you know, the founding principle of, of missions organizations. It's why churches like ours support missions and missionaries. It's why missionaries like the Browns give up everything to move across the world to share the gospel. So it must be important, right? But what makes it a great commission? Well, the, the Bible doesn't call it that. That's something we've added. It certainly isn't the length of it. It's only four verses. And, you know, in, in our heads, we probably think, well, because every gospel ends with a great commission, and that's not true either. Matthew's the only one who includes the great commission, if you, if you disregard that, that late edition at the end of Mark. The other gospels don't include this at all. So, it, you know, we think through all these things, and well, it's in one gospel, it's only four verses, but it's got to be important. It has to be. And the answer, of course, to that is yes. And let me start with just an answer in brief. The, the great commission is the reason why you and I know Jesus Christ. Start there. The only reason the gospel didn't just end and fizzle out with the first generation of disciples with 12 men 2,000 years ago is because of this. Their understanding of the command of Christ, their obedience of the command of their King Jesus is the reason we know the gospel today. Trace your own salvation. Perhaps your knowledge of the gospel of Christ came through your parents or maybe through your church or a school or a youth group or a summer camp or a radio ministry, who knows? But you know the gospel because someone preached it to you. Someone shared with you the gospel. The Great Commission is the reason that they did that. It's the reason my parents taught me the gospel. It's why, if I go back further, someone invited my dad to church as a kid. Follow your gospel story. The Great Commission is the reason. Aside from our own experience, of the blessing and the fruit of the Great Commission, Matthew also makes it really clear in his gospel that this passage is, is just crucial in how we understand who Jesus Christ is and what his ministry meant and what we are to do. And those are the two big ways, big reasons I want, you to, show, I want to show you that the Great Commission is important, and Matthew tells us this. First, for Matthew in his gospel and for us today, the Great Commission is rooted in the resurrection. It's our first key point. Every gospel author emphasizes particular themes in their writing, and, and Matthew's no exception. Matthew, through his whole gospel, continually emphasizes that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the king, that he's the prophesied savior of Israel, and in particular, that he is the son of man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man almost 30 times in Matthew. It's more than any other title assigned to him in any gospel. So if that name, if that title isn't all that familiar to you, let me take you to Daniel 7 where it comes from. We're going to spend a moment here looking at, looking at what goes on in Daniel 7. The latter half of the book of Daniel, we're familiar with the first part, right? We've got lion's den, we've got fiery furnace, all those things. But the second half of the book takes a very different turn. It's a series of prophecies, of apocalyptic prophecies. And in that very first vision that Daniel has while he's in Babylon, in Daniel 7, he sees the rulers of this world, of all times and places, and he sees them as these wild and terrifying beasts. And what he sees of them is the death and destruction that they brought to whatever their dominions were. The rulers of this world were destructive, terrifying beasts. 
Then Daniel sees coming to these beasts one that he calls the Ancient of Days, which is a common term in the Old Testament for God the Father. And the Father descends from heaven to earth in great glory and fire on his throne, and he comes to judge the rulers of men. In the middle of this judgment, in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, another person appears in Daniel's vision. Daniel records it this way in, in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. It says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There are lots of prophetic images of the Messiah of Israel through the Old Testament, but this is the one that Jesus referred to himself as the most often. He said, I am the Son of Man. Jesus Christ, our Messiah, is that Son of Man. He is the one who would ascend to the Father. He is the one who would be given complete and eternal dominion, glory, and a kingdom of peoples and nations and languages. At this point, it would be fair to think, I thought we were in Matthew 28, and what about the resurrection? So yes, that, that is fair. We're going to return to that now. But let me show you why this Son of Man, the, the prophecy here matters for our text this morning. Matthew's been emphasizing through his gospel, as we said, that Jesus is the Son of Man, and he's only really been doing that by using the title. Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. That's pretty much all we have to this point. We don't really have any proof. There's no real evidence that this is the case. Until the moment of the resurrection. We said on Good Friday that Jesus took our place, right? He took on the punishment that we deserved. He provided in that moment full and final payment for the debt that we could never afford to pay. He took on our sin and extended to us righteousness in its place. He was then the only man to ever die without sin. He was the only man to ever die without deserving death. There was no punishment for sin for him, yet he died anyway. Because he died as that perfect sacrifice, that sinless Savior, the Son of God, he rose to new life, and he conquered death and sin and the grave on our behalf. Being raised to life as that resurrected Messiah, that perfect Savior, Jesus is the only one who could ascend to the Father and be presented before the Ancient of Days and receive worthily the kingdom that would last forever. The Son of Man had to be Jesus Christ. It could be no other. There's no one else who could stand before the Father. There's no one else who is worthy of that kingdom except for Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is the moment that proves that of Jesus. It's the moment that proves Him to be the Son of Man as he said he was. And our text is rooted in the resurrection because it's the moment that Jesus claims that kingdom of the Son of Man. The resurrection proved it. 
this is the moment where he claims it. He says, I am the Son of Man, and I am taking what is mine. I am claiming my kingdom. He says that in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Let me just read it again for us. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus knew he was the Son of Man. He knew what his promised kingdom was. He knew that as the king, he had dominion over all peoples. Go and make disciples of all nations. He knew that his dominion was eternal, was forever. He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. This is the moment in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says most clearly, I am the Son of Man. He has eternal dominion, absolute, complete, over all the kings, all the places, all the times in this world. This is a big deal. Jesus is the king, not a king. He's the king of kings. From there, from that assertion, Matthew really only records one command for us given by the proven Son of Man, the glorious risen King, the eternal King of this world whose dominion will never end, our Messiah. That only command given to his followers is the Great Commission. That's it. That's all Matthew records from our risen King. The Great Commission matters because it is rooted in the person and the resurrection of the Son of Man, our King Jesus. It matters. Second thing, the Great Commission is rooted in the sovereign plan of God. The Great Commission is not a fundamentally new thing. It's the continuation, the fulfillment of many previous commands and covenants given by God to His people throughout all of salvation history. It's not new. The ultimate purpose of God, even from creation, has been clear through Scripture, and His purpose is to fully dwell with His people eternally, where we will glorify Him forever. That's what He started in the garden, and it's what He will complete in eternity. And we can follow that all the way through Scripture. If we start in the garden, the commission to Adam and Eve in that beautiful, perfect creation with the Lord was to be fruitful and multiply. There was going to be a glorious people of God in the garden that God would dwell with. This is repeated again to Noah and his family after the Lord cleanses the earth and he brings one family through. He says, this is your earth. Be fruitful. Multiply. Create a people of God is what we can see there. The Lord later calls to himself a family, right? He calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he doesn't just call that family. Through that family, he's seeking to call a people. Part of that blessing is he says, in you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the families and nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a bigger calling than just them. If we go to Exodus, when the Lord calls Israel as his chosen people, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he's working to fulfill this purpose. 
The Lord says in Exodus 19, he says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be a treasured possession among the peoples. The reason they needed to be a kingdom of priests is because when all of the world came to Jerusalem, came to the Lord to see this God that Israel worshipped, they would be the priests for the nations. It's the only reason you need a whole kingdom worth of priests is if there's a lot more kingdoms who need your work. Israel is meant to be a call to the, wor- to the Lord, uh, uh, for the world, through their obedience to their covenant. They were supposed to be a beacon of hope that as they obeyed and as the Lord blessed them, the world would look and say, what else could this be but God? And they would flock to Israel. In all of biblical history, God was working to call to himself a people bigger than Adam and Eve, bigger than Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, bigger than Israel. The people of God would always be of every people, nation, and language, as it said in Daniel 7. Through all of these covenants, through all these commissions, from Adam through to Israel, God was working out his relationship with man, and he was making it possible for the full restoration and redemption of his people to himself through Jesus Christ. Throughout the Bible, we get tastes, we get images, we get pictures of the ultimate goal we said a moment ago, the purpose of the Lord to dwell with his people. We get pieces of it. After the fall, we we see God reestablishing relationship with individuals, a man, a family, then a nation. His presence dwelled with that nation in a limited way, right? In the, the most holy place, in the tabernacle, then the temple. And ultimately, on this earth, we saw the presence of God with his people in the person and work of Christ. That's the ultimate expression that this world has seen of the presence of God since the garden. But in all of these cases, as amazing as they are, and as incredible as it is that God was in the temple, as amazing it is that Jesus came as a man and God, the presence of God, the dwelling of God with his people in all of those cases is so limited because of the sin of man. The fullness of the presence of God has not dwelled with his people. Instead, we see that the Lord appears in dreams and in visions. He sends angelic messengers. He sends a covenant to speak on his behalf and a law. He dwelled in the temple and tabernacle behind layers and layers of shroud and fabric and curtains so the people wouldn't be consumed in his presence. Right, we saw that in Leviticus 10 this week with Nadab and Abihu, right? They approached the presence of the Lord in an unworthy way and they were consumed because the presence of God cannot dwell with sinful people. Not only this, but the the means of the Lord working to dwell with his people, Israel, those who he called to himself, they couldn't fulfill their end of the covenant, right? The promise was blessing because of obedience, but they failed to obey and submit to the Lord. They therefore did not receive the blessings, and so they weren't that beacon of hope, and they were never able to bring together a kingdom for the Lord of all peoples 
and nations and languages. They failed because their hearts were hard, because they had hearts of stone. But we know what happens next, right? Then Jesus came. Jesus not only dwelled among his people, God in human form, but through his life and death, he fulfilled their covenant. And he brought a new one. And he obeyed and fulfilled that new covenant on our behalf as well. This new covenant that he brought and fulfilled for us removes our hearts of stone. It gives us hearts of flesh. This covenant raises us from spiritual death to life. It gives us sight instead of blindness. Not only do all these things happen, but this covenant also promises the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. Literally, God dwelling with man. All this time we've seen such limited forms of God dwelling with his people. The Holy Spirit in us is the most full, the most real fulfillment of that we've seen in all of Scripture. God dwells with us. What a covenant. What a Savior and what a plan. The new covenant through Jesus Christ, those hearts of flesh, that gift of the Spirit, they mean that we can actually fulfill this great commission. Where Israel failed because of their hard hearts, we have hearts of flesh. Not only do we have the tools and things we need to fulfill it, to be fruitful, to multiply, to go make disciples, to baptize and teach, to bring the gospel to all nations, we know that this work, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, the sovereign plan of the Lord is guaranteed in Christ. He will fulfill His work, and God will indeed dwell with His people forever in glory. Listen to what God the Father says in Revelation 21, at the end of all things. Revelation 21, verse 3, the Lord says, from His throne, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The Great Commission matters because it is rooted in the glorious and sovereign plan of God to dwell with his people. So let's take a minute just to recognize what we've said so far about the Great Commission. What we said is that King Jesus, the resurrected Son of Man, who has been given eternal dominion over all things, has called His people to participate in the work of creating the kingdom of God from every people, every nation, every language in fulfillment of the sovereign plan and work of the Lord from eternity past to eternity future. This is our great commission. This is our calling to be evangelists of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it means. I want to spend our last few minutes talking about where do we go from here. It is a great commission, but what do we do with it now? How do we think through this? How do we actually be evangelists of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we submit to the one command we're given from King Jesus? 
What I don't want to do is try to inspire you to evangelize by guilting you and by your lack of doing so. That's true of me, too. This is probably the hardest sermon I've written because it's the least true of me. I do not evangelize regularly. I should. I can. I know certainly enough (laughs) to do so. So do you. Guilt or shame is not our ticket this morning. Instead, I want to try to provide us with some encouragement to evangelize. We're going to go with the carrot over the stick today anyway. Let me encourage you with this first thing. You are already an evangelist. You are. You absolutely are. Maybe not of the gospel on a regular basis, but you are most certainly an evangelist of something or of many things, depending on who you are. Anytime you have good news, the best thing, a new way, the best way, the right plan, something you've learned in your life that you've come to love or appreciate, something that's changed you for the better, something you then have to share with somebody else because it will improve their day, it will change their life, it will make their dinner better. Anytime you have that experience, you're being an evangelist. You're bringing good news to someone with the hope of converting them to believing in it. It doesn't have to be about Jesus. We evangelize about lots of things. Maybe you're an evangelist of Instapot, right? You do it, you believe it. It is a miracle in the kitchen, and it will change your life. You're a mother with three kids, Instapot. You can cook anything in that thing. Talk to Terry Ann Gainick, right? Maybe you are an evangelist of the latest fad diet. This will make you feel better. I wake up in the morning, and I just feel good. I have so much more energy and I've been, what are those things called? I've done a cleanse or something. I don't know. Clearly, I'm a big partaker in fat diets. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're an evangelist for some kind of exercise plan or something, or for green living. Maybe you uh, are an evangelist for Toyota. I'm one of those. Love them. Great cars. Uh, maybe you're an evangelist for the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? Every other sports, you know, believer in a sports team you meet, like, just, let's just talk about the Leafs. Your, your other team is a joke. Maybe you're an evangelist for Volkswagen. Might have a few of those around talk to Glenn. Uh, Maybe you, and this is just a great list, right, all these things. Maybe you're an evangelist of the Canadian dream. You know, have you gone to school? You thinking about a house? Can I get married? Can I have kids? Maybe that's what you're an evangelist for. Or university education. As soon as you finish high school, you've got to get the school. You've got to get an education. You've got to get a degree. It'll change your life. Maybe you're an evangelist for homeownership or homeschooling. There's lots of things, right? I'm sure that there is something you're an evangelist of. Doesn't have to be big, might be small. So you already know what it means to be excited about something that's changed your life. You know what it means to feel that you have to share it with someone because it's going to change their life. And whatever that thing is, you probably don't have all the answers about it. You probably don't know everything there is to know about that thing. You probably can't and won't convert every skeptic. We don't own an Instapot right? But you still try, and you still share that good news because it might change somebody's life. It might improve someone's day. It might make someone's dinner better. Who cares if the first nine people think that the Instapot is really stupid? The tenth person, if they do it, they're in, and you've changed their life. We have the skills, we have the ability to be an evangelist, and I'm sure that you already are one. Second thing, second encouragement, the Lord has equipped us 
for every good work. Right? We've been saying this already. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have new, living, spiritual hearts. We have been raised to new life in Christ. We have the ability to fulfill the Great Commission. We can do it. The Lord is doing it in us. Second, uh, Peter writes this in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 of the Lord. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. The Lord has equipped us to do this work. And He's given us all of the promises of the new covenant in order to do so. Third encouragement. We are those who have seen Jesus Christ. Right, when we see some positive thing in our life, Toyota, Instapot, when we see positive change from that thing, big or small, we want to share it with others. My hope is that when we see what Matthew has done here in, in the final chapter of his gospel, when we have that big view of Christ, that we will see and remember that Jesus Christ, our King, is the biggest, most incredible, complete, and eternal positive change, gift to us that we could ever ask for or imagine. If there's something in our life that has made a difference that we should be excited to share with other people, it's Christ. Forget about Instapot, right? It's Jesus. When we dwell on the impact of the gospel, the reality of eternal life, the truth of redemption from sin, freedom from eternal condemnation, when we meditate on the reality of the resurrection of Christ from death, when we think that He is our risen King, He is the Messiah, He is the Son of Man, that He fulfilled the covenant with God on our behalf, and when we think about the fruit of His work in our lives, although not yet complete, it's evident. Jesus is doing a work in us. When we come to Jesus and we see who He is and what He has done, how can we help but go and tell others about Him? What news we have, what joy we have to share, what hope we have in Jesus Christ. And we won't convert everyone. We don't know the answers for every skeptic. But if the first nine, if the first ten, if the first hundred don't believe us, but one does, that person's life is changed forever by Jesus Christ. What a glorious work that God is doing in and through us to bring others to himself. All that to say, our great commission matters because it's rooted in the person and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And because it is the glorious, sovereign plan of God to dwell with His people forever through the Great Commission. And praise God that through the Holy Spirit, with our hearts of flesh, alive in Christ, we can serve our King. That King, that resurrected Son of Man who has eternal dominion over all things and all peoples. And we can be part of that 
part of creating the people of God, whom the Lord will dwell with forever in glory as he has purposed for all of eternity. It is indeed a great commission. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that this morning we would have seen your commission to us as our King with fresh eyes. Lord, that we would understand that this is a great call because of who you are, because of what you have done, because this is a part of your working out in salvation history for all time. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be raised in glory with you and we will stand among a multitude, your kingdom of all peoples, all nations, all tongues, and we will be able to praise you and say that we have helped and worked and you have used us in your purposes to fulfill your great commission. Lord, we praise you, we love you, and we glorify you as our resurrected king, the son of man, the one who reigns and has dominion forever over all things. We pray this in the name of our king, Jesus. Amen.